0: Stanford University.
1: This is Aaron Rodrigue. I'm Aaron Rodrigue, the, the director of the Stanford Humanities Center. And uh, I'm pleased to welcome you to this uh, afternoon's uh, lecture by uh, Fred Cooper. Professor Cooper is here at the Humanities Center as the Marta Sutton Week's Distinguished Visitor for 2010. This is the second of two lectures this week. And tomorrow, he will do the final event of his visit, a seminar coming out of his recent book, co-authored with Jane Burbank, who is also here, who also teaches at NYU, who will also join him in leading the discussion, so you're all welcome. And I will be taking the boardroom, and the reading is, uh, um, uh, selections of the reading are outside on the table uh, by the entrance. And... uh, Uh, Fred Cooper will be introduced this afternoon by Jim Ferguson, the chair of the Department of Anthropology at Stanford.
2: Jim. Thanks, Aaron. It's only after I agreed to do this introduction that I started to think about what a daunting task I had agreed to take on in introducing Fred Cooper. It is difficult to overstate Fred's standing and importance for the field of African studies. He is quite simply one of the truly great historians of Africa, period. So in thinking about this introduction, I have struggled to find a way to convey the scope, power, and importance of his work. As a kind of intellectual shortcut, I thought one approach might be to point to his importance in my own intellectual development. This will yield a very partial glimpse of Fred's contributions over the years, but perhaps a revealing one. I first encountered Fred as a labor historian. His 1980 book, From Slaves to Squatters, made a major impression on me when I was first entering graduate school. This penetrating study analyzed the end of slavery, not simply as the advent of what many accounts are content to call freedom, but as a process of transition to new systems of property and labor control, and as a historical moment that illuminated both the workings of colonial power and their stark limits. I admired this work greatly, but it did not seem immediately relevant to my own PhD research, on which I was then starting out, on late 20th century projects of development in Lesotho. When I started reading for this project, though, I found another side to Cooper's work. He had, it turns out, just done a masterful survey article that laid out a remarkably comprehensive and authoritative account of, as he put it, Africa in the world economy. An article that anticipated many of the arguments that I hoped to make. But I was not disheartened. After all, I wasn't just interested in the political economy of development. I also wanted to explore the intellectual genealogy of the development concept. But here too, Cooper was already on it, doing the groundbreaking work that would eventually lead to his influential edited volume, International Development and the Social Sciences. I gritted my teeth and moved on. Some years later, looking for something new, I turned to what I thought was a very different project, a study of mine workers on the urban Zambian copper belt. Again though, much of the foundational work had already been done by someone named, you guessed it, Frederick Cooper. I think it was at this time that I began to intone his last name in something of the same anguished way that Jerry Seinfeld says the name Newman. (laughs) His monograph on the African waterfront dealt brilliantly with issues of urban disorder, colonial projects of modernization and stabilization and the persistent lack of fit between European categories of knowledge and government on the one hand and African realities on the other. And on the topic of African cities, where I was trying to develop a new approach, I was startled to find that the critical perspective I was struggling to arrive at was already comprehensively laid out in the introduction to his edited volume, Struggle for the City. Desperately seeking a way out of the Cooper labyrinth, I took yet another turn. I would write a book of essays on globalization in Africa. But before I could publish my book, of course, Cooper published his blockbuster article that helpfully explained in a manner painfully clear to all that there was no such thing as globalization. Now I am beginning yet another project on social payments and welfare states in neoliberal Africa. And sure enough, no sooner did I start researching it than I found that all the, colonial, all the foundational work on colonial African social policy had already been done, done by, who else? Cooper. <laughs> Fred Cooper's contributions to African studies go far beyond those I've been able to mention here. Indeed, it would be difficult to count the important works in our field that have become possible or conceivable only because of the pioneering work by Fred that opened the ground for them on topics ranging from decolonization to colonial culture to comparative empire studies and more. It is precisely because he has placed so many of us in his intellectual debt in this way that he is regarded in the most serious scholarly circles, not only with the highest level of respect, but also with a recognition that his is the sort of generous and generative scholarship that not only yields new insights, but also catalyzes, enables, and enhances the work of others. For this reason, it is with great honor, gratitude, and affection that I present to you this evening's speaker, Frederick Cooper, who will speak to us on the topic, Imperial Repertoires and the Myth of Modern Colonialism. Fred, welcome.
3: Well, thanks very much for that generous introduction. Jim which, which omits only one thing that jim 's book on development in, in Lesotho was a mind opener for me and one of the inspirations for the for the project that eventually became the edited book International Development and Social Sciences, to which Jim contributed a chapter so these influences are mutual, and I want to thank as well Aaron for his kind invitation to come here and and allow me to have this very exciting week and to have some uh, continuous conversations over the course of it. Uh, And now for the provocation of the day. In 1871, the King of Prussia proclaimed himself to be Kaiser Caesar of the German Empire following his victory over another self-proclaimed Emperor Napoleon III. The ceremony took place in Versailles, thereby appropriating a rival's claim to imperial authority. The new realm became known as the Second Reich, creating a genealogy that originated in the Holy Roman Empire, the First Reich, whose roots in turn go back to Charlemagne and then the Roman Empire. Looking beyond the specifically German pedigree was more than an empty gesture. The Reich included large areas where people spoke Polish, Danish, and French, and despite having defeated the Austrian Empire in 1866, the Kaiserreich did not attempt to incorporate the German speakers of that realm into a political structure on a German basis. Only later did this venture turn overseas. In 1874, a book was published in France to great success with the title de la colonisation chez les peuples modernes, on colonization among modern people. Its author, Paul de Roy Beaulieu, developed a vision of an empire of engineers and doctors, not of conquistadors, to be run on rational principles by modern people in their own interest, but such an empire would eventually allow colonized people to rise to prosperity within an imperial polity. Here we have two images of empire in the late 19th century, one stressing continuity with empires past, the other a new departure, distinguishing orderly progress from arbitrary tyranny. Both are part of the representations and practices of political power in late 19th century Europe. But it is the second story of a new kind of European state creating a new kind of empire that has taken pride of place in the scholarship of recent decades, a narrative that that organizes history since the end of the 18th century around the transition from empire to nation state and which underscores the imposition of a colonial modernity on the rest of the world. My talk emerges from a book I have written with Jane Burbank called Empires in World History, Power and the Politics of Difference. Jane is present here and will answer all the difficult questions. Uh, The the book paints a broad canvas of 2,000 years of history. But today I want to reflect on some of the key analytical points behind our narrative. We are trying to write about empire without privileging concepts like modernity or the expansion of the West as an alternative to the grand narrative that goes from empire to nation state. The 19th century is when this argument runs into other ways of seeing things. Nobody doubts that Rome was a vast empire building project. That empire should be the model for constructing a new state in 1871 is less obvious. And even less so is the fact that the relationship of state and nation was still an open one in 1945. And then empires could still be evoked as models for reconstructing a diverse polity. That was the subject of my talk here on Monday. To recall one point briefly, it might appear to us bizarre that in the debates over a constitution for post-war France uh, that would include French territories in Africa, the Caribbean, and Asia, legislators cited as a relevant precedent the extension of citizenship to all free males of the Roman Empire in 212 A.D. by the Emperor Caracalla. His colleagues at the time did not think this so odd, and they repeatedly referred to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the British Commonwealth, the federal structure of the United States, and the national republics of the Soviet Union as they pondered what to do. Our French legislators making a point that France was a complex polity, presiding over diverse forms of society protectorates with their own nationality and sovereignty, as well as colonies and overseas provinces. And then had to think of ways of balancing inclusion, differentiation, and control. Republican France couldn't do this in the same way as hierarchical Rome, but it faced the same problem, how to give diverse people, especially local elites, enough of a stake in an imperial system to do what was needed of them and retain enough of a center to maintain control and profit from it. Terms like second empire or even third have been applied to the empires of France and Britain in the 19th century. We are deeply skeptical of an argument that holds that old empires disappeared, turned into nation states, and then sent out to conquer new areas for glory and lucre in the name of the nation. Our argument is not, ala Joseph Schumpeter, that 19th century empires were atavistic, a reversion to a pre-modern uh, past. But we are saying that the category of modern is not helpful in analyzing them, that we learn more by avoiding the notion of epical transformations, by keeping in play tensions between different forms of political organization, and by recognizing the coexistence of different kinds of states. We use the concept of imperial repertoires, for we think that the reason why empires were around so long and continued to provide such plausible models for political change was their flexibility. Juggling the relationship of incorporation and differentiation was what they did, not bound to the idea that a single people were supposed to rule themselves or rule over other people. National sentiments and nationalism move in and out of this story, but they don't frame it. What worried empires most was other empires. At the end of the 19th century, as much as at the beginning, some empire forms were failing in the end of the 19th century, but other forms were appearing, Japan, and later Nazi Germany, and the Soviet Union. The context which shaped so much of European politics, not least the rise of nationalism, was inter-empire rivalry. Since the fall of the Roman Empire and the rise of Islamic caliphates, later the Mongol empires, and still later the Ottomans, Western Europeans found themselves both divided and hemmed in on continental space. The maritime empires of the 16th century arose in the context where, the, where, the extending, where extending power within Western Europe was a zero-sum game. And the greater cohesion of the Ottomans made external resources the only way for a would-be emperor to get beyond geopolitical constraints and the strength of local lords. Rulers were as intent on preventing someone, else, someone else's imperial consolidation as advancing their own. We argue that overseas empires reflected weakness and division, not a meta-historical trend stemming from an inherently European predilection for expansion or domination. China and the Ottomans may in the long run have suffered from their relative strength at this time, for they were doing very well by consolidating territorial power and control over key trade routes by land or by sea. China's key role in enhancing trade in East Asia provided most of the incentive for Europeans to seek long-distance connections, the Ottomans the necessity to follow a maritime rather than a continental route. No one at the time knew how things would turn out. And for all the changes that followed from extended maritime networks, the rivalry of imperial powers in Western Europe remained and became an incentive for military and fiscal innovation. Becoming or preventing a new Rome remained the key, if not the key, to European power politics. Charlemagne, Charles V, Napoleon, and Hitler were part of this history. The repertoire of imperial power was enhanced by the technological and organizational innovations of the 19th century. The steamboat, rapid-fire weapons, the telegraph, bureaucracy separated from loyalty to individual monarchs, ideas of progress as a political goal. Yet imperial rulers of the era failed to produce structures that that were systemic, durable, and effective instruments of social change. European rule over Africa lasted 70 or 80 years, compared to the 600 year run of the Ottomans, the thousand of the Byzantines, the centuries of Habsburg power, or the two millennia in which a series of Chinese dynasties claimed the mantle of their predecessors. For all their economic, military, technological, and cultural means, European powers in the 19th century failed to lay the basis for a stable concept of imperial rule. Their bureaucracies were thin on the ground and lacking in means, so that in practice, in French as much as British Africa, rulers depended on playing the oldest of imperial games, acquiring the contingent accommodation of local elites, turning the people initially condemned as the agents of tyranny and slavery in Africa into the repositories of African tradition that wise colonial rulers had to preserve. In India and Southeast Asia, European rulers had to give even more space to local Elites. But let us try, let us start with the most dramatic change in European state systems at the end of the 18th century, the French Revolution, which we might well re- rename the Franco Haitian Revolution of 1789 to 1804. The revolutionary process opened the possibility of the rule of, of a nation by its people, but it did not settle the question of who were the people. Uh, whether they were bounded by a nation defined by a particular people in a particular place or followed the lines of the extension of French imperial power. When planters, free people of color, and eventually slaves in Saint-Domingue demanded the rights of the citizen, leaders in, in Paris were unsure whether citizenship was national or imperial. Confronted by the challenges of royalist counter-revolution, invasion by other emp- empires, and the slave revolt, the revolutionary government found pragmatic as well as principled reasons to think of, of citizenship in imperial rather than national ter- uh, terms. Only when, when Napoleon tried to reimpose slavery in 1802 did the quest for freedom and citizenship turn from an attempted transformation within the French empire to an attempt to get out of it. Similarly, the revolutions in North and South America were revolutions within empire before they were revolutions against empire. The ideology of North American patriots came out of the idea of the freeborn Englishman transported across the ocean. And when they felt that monarchy wasn't living by its own rules, they set out to create what Thomas Jefferson himself called an empire of liberty. One of the main reasons the 13 states united was to make their way in a world where empire was a norm, and rival empires the threat. The second main reason was to extend power across space, creating a differentiated polity in which not all people of the empire would share in the liberty. Their Spanish-American counterparts tried with the Constitution of 1812 to reform a polity on both sides of the ocean, but the split over how it should be run gave rise to a civil war in which different sorts of Spaniards fought on both sides. As Jeremy Edelman has recently argued, the nationalism of of Latin American republics was more a consequence than a cause of the revolutionary process. In Mexico and Brazil, leaders proclaimed themselves to be emperors. As the 19th century began, the structure of political affiliation and conflict was shaped by the domination of a small number of empires and the necessity for everyone else to work with or against such a structure. Empire provided the framework in which capitalism developed, rather than capitalism being the framework within, one, within which one should understand imperialism. It was at the turn of the 19th century that what Ken Pomerantz calls the great divergence, the distancing of British economic development from that of parts of Asia, came into play. Pomerance's empire resources is a crucial part of the story. By deriving a significant portion of the calories consumed by British workers as they moved out of agriculture, empire sugar, represented a contribution to the economy whose opportunity costs were borne by others, by people in the Americas who lost their land or lost their lives, and Africans who were forcibly moved to a place they didn't want to be. At this point, empire was essential to to these developments. Without the protection of power exercised across oceans, the sugar islands of the Caribbean were vulnerable to the attacks of rival empires. Without the ability of empires to supply the force to repress slave revolts, planters would have been too insecure to maintain such a concentration of coerced African laborers. Closer to home, capitalist development, especially in its early phases, needed a strong state capable of enforcing and legitimating property relations and maintaining discipline. And what John Brewer calls the fiscal military state in 18th century Britain was also the product of empire, of concentrating resources in military and financial institutions in the context of rivalry among empires, especially those of France and Spain. But in the abstract, capitalism did not depend on any particular form of rule. It has flourished under different sorts of regimes, from electoral democracy to fascism to China's post-communist one-party state. Capitalism seemed to make commodities independent of the social and political relations among people who produced and consumed them. Raw materials could be bought on a market. Labor could be hired. Products could be transported and consumed anywhere where money was available to buy them. But if empire was crucial to capitalism's early development, the relationship soon began to oscillate. When Britain jumped to a large economic lead over its European as well as its extra European rivals, and when the defeat of Napoleon temporarily reduced the number of the, the, the threat of empire rivalries, the relationship entered a new phase. What Ronald Robinson and John Gallagher famously called the imperialism of free trade was possible in the early 19th century in a way it had not been earlier, both because of Britain's economic advantage and its navy and because the French and Spanish loss of, of empire in the Americas gave, created added space in which such a strategy could be practiced. Free trade made sense because the world did not consist of equivalent powers, and it made most sense to the most powerful state at the time. Meanwhile, empire proved to be as important to slavery's demise as it had been to its ascension. Abolishing slavery was a coercive act, and Britain forced it on its own overseas intermediaries and then put pressure on other, weaker empires to follow its lead in acting against the slave trade. It used empire to provide a semi-coercive alternative to the fully coercive labor of the slave plantation. Laborers recruited under questionable conditions in India who served under indentures in the sugar islands. By fetishizing the labor contract, officials tried to avoid, not entirely successfully, the charge that the supposed global triumph of free labor entailed uh, a new system of slavery. But the imperialism of free trade was imperialism and not just trade, because always on the verge of becoming something else. The nudge of gunboat diplomacy that supplemented the attractiveness of British markets and capital could turn into occupation or colonization if arrangements broke down. When later in the century Germany, and to an extent France, began to challenge uh, British industrial hegemony, the situation reverted to what had long been the Western European norm rivalry among a small number of powers intent on using continental and overseas resources in their quest for domination. Each power feared its rivals would gain exclusive control over resources overseas and privileged access to markets for industrial production. The most characteristic episode of the late 19th century century empire, the scramble for Africa, was really about preemption, a fear that if one European power, say Germany, moved to incorporate uh, territories into its empire, others would be excluded from access. Had Europe in the 1890s consisted of anything like the 27 states that are part of the EU today, there would have been no need for a preemptive scramble. But it did not. There were only three or four powers that counted, all with supranational resources and ambitions, plus a few small states like Belgium that could make the most of the opportunity to maneuver among the giants. The concept of preemption helps us to understand why the scramble for Africa occurred so rapidly and why afterwards all the European powers invested so little in actually developing its resources. They had accomplished what they had to do. Only when World War II dealt a blow to all the European powers, victors as well as losers, and when all overseas empires lost their grips at the same time, were Western European powers free from the rivalries that had beset them from the fall of the Roman Empire a lineage of attempted domination that runs from Charlemagne to Hitler. Only at this point, both winners and losers were free to participate in an increasingly interactive world market, free of the temptations of empire. To say this is to get ahead of the game. That Habsburgs, Romanovs, and Ottomans were significant enough actors in the early 20th century to be essential to the alliances and intrigues that led to World War I, and vibrant enough to reform their imperial structure several times over, is often overlooked in a vision of European history that implies that such states should have known they were anachronisms and gracefully dissolved into national components. There is no need to belittle the appeals of nationalism in the 19th century. The question is the structural context in which nationalists and other forms of politics could play out. The Habsburgs, for example, not only were capable of creative adaptations, the dual monarchy of Austria and Hungary of 1867, but provided a system that in some ways corresponded better to the way people in Central Europe actually lived than did the idea of a territorially demarcated state. A large portion of people who lived in the boundaries that Hungarian nationalists eventually claimed were not Hungarian, and a large percentage of Hungarians lived outside of Hungary. Jews could find a place in an empire that they couldn't in a nation state. The bloody unmixing of people that occurred in Central Europe after 1918 reminds us that people who saw the danger of the nation state indeed had much to fear. They were not mere dupes of backward-looking aristocracies. The Austro-Hungarian Empire continued to loom large enough in people's political imagination that its diverse populations largely fought loyally during World War I. The Ottoman Empire, when faced with the loss of much of its Christian population, the result as much of intrigues by Russian, Austrian, and British empires as secessionist movements, developed an Islamicist account of itself to retain its appeal to Arab elites in the Eastern Mediterranean. And Lawrence of Arabia notwithstanding, largely retained in World War I the accommodation, if not the loyalty, of those elites." Russian expansion across the Eurasian continent mirrors that of the United States across North America in the 19th century, except that Russia deployed a much more adoptive repertoire of power over the peoples it conquered, finding a variety of ways to incorporate local authorities, work with religious leaders, move threatening people around, and give others a stake in a vast spatial system where lines of authority pointed to the Tsar. The threats to Russia's imperial system came much more from contestation over the center than from restiveness at the edges, and both liberals and Bolsheviks viewed their future through imperial lenses as much as did their czarist foes. In all these empires, reformers were concerned with being with the times, and all were aware that what those times meant was being set by the wealthiest and most dynamic of imperial powers. But such ideas did not fit in national containers. The biggest challenge of the old empires were, first of all, other empires, whose support for national movements in other people's empires was necessary for several such movements to gain much leverage. And secondly, the unevenness of capitalist development. The growing technological advantages of the early industrializers and the escalation of military technology uh, in the competition among them forced Ottomans and others to go into debt to maintain their place in inter-empire competition. And the debts they acquired to France and Britain, among others, opened the door to forms of financial imperialism that made the encroachment of Western European uh, empires in Algeria, Libya, and Egypt, for instance, hard to resist. Commerce was also a solvent of imperial ties, making it harder for Istanbul to remain so important to the commercial communities of Jews, Greeks, Armenians, and others that had once been its hallmark. And ideas traveled faster still, not just nationalism, but liberalism, constitutionalism, socialism, feminism, all of which posed challenges to dynastic rulers. Connections across space were at least as big a challenge as the unification of national space. This brings me back to my principal theme, the limits of empire, in ambition and transformative power, in which at first glance seems like the best case for the domination of a technologically advanced, ideologically self-confident Europe over Africa. The widening technology and organizational gap of the 19th century gives rise to a question of whether it meant that colonial government took on a new and unheralded form in world history, or whether it meant that Britain and France could be better Ottomans or better Mongols. Chris Bailey has suggested that British action in India in the 19th century uh, took on an increasingly Ottoman approach to empire, Focus on the control of space, on exacting land revenue, and ensuring that old and new economic networks would have to pass through imperial nodes, hoping that the usual imperial strategy of governing different people differently would allow the empire to expand and manipulate its various components. I would suggest that in Africa, Britain and France acted more like Mongols than either could possibly admit with a machine gun and a telegraph playing similar roles to the arrow-wielding cavalry and the relays of horse-borne messengers by which Mongols could inflict terror over vast spaces without taking on the burden of too much administration uh, or too much uh, transformation. Mongols, of course, were much more religiously and culturally tolerant. But I will suggest later that the hallmark distinctions of 19th century colonialism based on notions of racial inferiority and cultural backwardness were themselves unstable notions, less coherent than an, than an ideological basis of a new colonialism. Certainly many thinkers in, and actors in 19th century colonization wanted to portray that, what they were doing as modern. Leroy Beaulieu's book of 1874 was a case in point. Even earlier British writers like Thomas Macaulay or James Mill had advocated a colonization in India that would discard the deference, albeit a condescending one, extended to oriental princes in favor of a vigorous program of remaking India in a British image. These were arguments. They weren't the only arguments, and certainly not the only practices of their times. An attempt to read an essence of colonialism off such texts is a shortcoming of much of today's scholarship. colonial studies. Aware as they were of the possibilities of modernizing the techniques of colonial governance, imperial rulers are cautious to make use of them. Take the example that Bernard Cohen has made into an iconic demonstration of Foucauldian analysis of modern governmentality in the colonies, the Indian census. The idea of a population that could be demarcated, counted, and classified was central to such a concept. And Cohen made much of early efforts in the 19th century to follow such a script, culminating in the 1872 census in which thousands of Indians were employed to collect census data, helping to define India as a single space within a British empire while enabling colonial analysts to describe a population classifiable by caste, tribe, and religion. This is an important insight, but it cannot be generalized to a pattern of modern colonial governmentality. If this were so, then what can one make of the fact that the first census of the British colony of Kenya was only conducted in 1948? From the 1890s through the first half of the 20th century, officials in Kenya, indeed in most of Anglophone and Francophone Africa, were not thinking of the surveillance of Africans as a matter of analyzing a population. Rather, they were thinking of Africans as members of tribes analyzable as ethnic collectivities under the natural rulership of chiefs whose intermediary status was what made the colonial system work at an affordable price without the trouble of developing its resources too intensively. Keith Breckenridge makes a similar point about what might appear at first to be Africa's most bureaucratized state, South Africa. After trying various schemes to track, keep track of people, births, and deaths, the South African government decided in the 1920s that it was too much trouble and depended too much on chiefs who had their own ways of doing things. So that, to, to quote Breckenridge, the state consciously chose not to gather the most important, indeed the most basic information about its African subjects, end quote. It was only in the late 1930s and 1940s in, in Africa as a whole that British and French officials realized that they indeed lacked knowledge of how migration, regional commerce, and overseas connections had actually reshaped the way people lived and skirted the mechanisms by which these governments maintained control. But there is another problem with Cohen's view of colonial governmentality and modernity. There was nothing very new about censuses. Chinese empires had conducted censuses and cadastral surveys for over a thousand years. Ottomans and even Mongols had long done censuses as well. We thus see the justice of Sumit Guha's critique of Cohn's idea of what he refers to as a warm continuum of, modern, of pre-modern collective life suddenly and arbitrarily broken by colonial modernity. In citation. Rather than try to distinguish forms of governance by epic, one could more profitably look in a more focused manner on how government adapted their repertoires of rule to the relations of forces they confronted on the ground and how their repertoires shifted with new means and new challenges. This gets us back to considering in a broad light the general problem of governing empires. The problem of governing large spaces, first point, the problem of governing large spaces at long distances with diverse populations. Ancient Rome and China and 19th century Russia shared this problem with European governments pushing into Africa and Asia. Speed of communications, better military technology, and tighter organizational hierarchies helped spread empire. But more conquests meant more spaces to rule, and hence the need for more intermediaries. Whatever the condescension of European elites towards Indian princes and African chiefs, there were so few white officials on the ground that the problem of acquiring the contingent accommodation combination of indigenous elites had only rarely gone away. The closest one comes is in colonies with large numbers of white settlers, South Africa or Algeria, and these turned out to be administrative nightmares in their own ways with their demanding settlers and embittered Africans. The actual process of collecting land revenue and labor in India through princes and zamindars entailed compromises and tacit understandings. In colonial in Africa, conquest proved easier than routine administration. As armies inflicted terror on villages, distributed cattle and women, and moved onward, that early British officials promised, under pressure from missionaries and anti slavery activists, to act against slave dealing kings and chiefs, did not prove a durable basis for bypassing intermediaries. By the early 20th century, colonial rulers were settling for a more modest form of rule. French assaults on Islamic leaders gave way to cooperation to the annoyance of missionaries. If slavery had to be abolished, it could be defined narrowly and elite power maintained in places like northern Nigeria or coastal Kenya. In most of Africa, revenues could barely pay for their administrations and only do that if these administrations were cheap. Hegemony on a shoestring, as Sarah Berry calls it. When trouble loomed, exemplary terror, corporal punishments, and penal sanctions for violations of labor discipline were used, and almost as frequently criticized by humanitarians precisely because they seemed out of keeping with current ideas of humane governance. Such practices were neither modern nor, modern, nor non-modern. They were ugly, brutal, and practical. Second point that fits into my argument of, of, about the larger framework of empire, the multiple agenda, agendas of the actors involved. For some colonies, for some colonies were a chasse gardée, a protected zone where mediocre businesses could operate with minimal competition. For others, they were a place where souls could be saved. And missionaries, as J.P. Dalton has shown, were far more numerous and important in Africa than all the representatives of secular modernization, doctors, engineers, and school teachers. Some bureaucrats wanted to transform Africa in their own image. Others learned the ways of the societies they were operating in and pretended to act as if they themselves were traditional rulers. Les rois de la brusse, in the French expression, the, the kings of the bush. The repertoire of empire included still the worst sorts of predation, in the early 20th century, of which King Leopold's Congo became a notorious example. Chartered companies reminiscent of the British East India Company of an earlier era had a brief revival, subcontracted sovereignty along with a commercial protected zone, rife for abuse and not particularly successful. But other commercial interests, particularly in coastal West Africa, were content to treat Africans as trading partners, and they defended such a version of legitimate commerce as a matter of principle as well as of their own self-interest. Mining interests could, com- could combine technological prowess with labor recruiting techniques worthy of the 16th century silver mines of Peru. When it came to land tenure, colonial rulers appropriated large trunks in some places and elsewhere pulled their punches. There was talk of reforming tenure and creating a landmark in 19th century India, But officials were too afraid of upsetting the older structures of agrarian relations, damaging the Indian elite on whom they depended, provoking violence, and undermining a system of land revenue, actually to develop agrarian capitalism. In Africa, South Africa represented virtually the only case of a thoroughgoing capitalist transformation until well into the 20th century. And it was possible not only because of the discovery of diamonds in the 1860s and gold in the 1880s but also because of an older pattern of white settlement that was sufficiently deep to make possible the supervision of workers by owners and policing of the entire system by white officials. And South African capitalism took on a form that was not only racialized but tribalized, based on a fiction that Africans weren't really workers, not the anonymous labor power of Marxist theory, but members of traditional communities that were to be kept intact while men temporarily left for labor. As Jacques Marseille has argued, colonization made the most difference to weaker firms and weaker sectors of the French economy. They took advantage of protected zones and a time of recession when imperial preference shielded, not always effectively, a franc or sterling economy from adverse trends in world markets. The kind of investments in colonies that Lenin thought had become a necessity for finance capital never materialized, both because capital had plenty of alternatives and because colonial regimes rarely develop the infrastructure to make an investment in a broad spectrum of economic activities attractive in most of Africa and much of Asia. What stands out in the period of high colonialism is the unevenness of economic change, islands of acute exploitation in seas in which governments knew little and cared little about what went on. That 19th-century empires had a varied repertoire of economic policy and of power is not just a point for historians to observe; it was the focus for debate at the time. There were bitter arguments over what kind of colonialism was acceptable in Western Europe, that in a Western Europe that had become increasingly conscious of of itself. The conferences on Africa in Berlin in 1884 and Brussels in 1890-91, echoing that of Berlin on the Balkans in 1878, were key moments at which different European powers tried to regulate their own conflicts and present a common vision of civilization to each other and the rest of the world. Africa's colonizers were supposed to suppress trade in arms, slaves, and liquor, and they were to avoid conflict with each other by positing effective occupation as a standard for territorial claims, which in turn would be subject to negotiation. Of course the system failed, and not just in the way powers gave up on governing Africa systematically. The problem that the conferences tried to solve by negotiation, moderation, and a collective project of benevolent imperialism remained. The existence of a small number of European states trying to combine continental and overseas resources into imperial blocks in competition with each other hence the preemptive scramble for Africa that I alluded to earlier, hence the willingness of conquering powers to reify African tradition and make their deals with local elites, hence the pattern of empire intrigue that led into World War I. And that brings me to my third point about empire, empire and moral space. When Bartolome de las Casas wrote his tract in the 1540s about the cruelty of the Spanish toward the Indians of the Americas. He was making an argument about the obligations of Catholic monarchy toward people living in the space of empire. In the 1780s, Edmund Burke's indictment of Warren Hastings in the British East India Company was also an argument about empire as a moral space. The great tradition of anti-slavery led into, led into arguments about the obligations of colonizing powers and eventually into critiques of colonialism itself. Metaphors about stains on the British flag or the obligations of republican colonizers abounded in such debates. What interests us here is not that such such arguments created a genuine code of conduct for colonizers or a vision of liberalism or republicanism imposed on colonized populations, but that such debates were unresolved. I began by talking about the implications of citizenship ideology in French plantation colonies in the 1790s, giving rise to to an argument about whether, uh, whether people uh, throughout the empire had such rights. The argument was going on in 1848 when slavery was definitively abolished in, in the French empire and it was going on in 1946 when, when France de- debated whether citizenship should be extended to all its subjects throughout its African and other empires. That such arguments were even possible, of course, represents one of the great political breakthroughs in the 18th century that popular sovereignty became a possibility, something that one could claim. It was not one which Europeans necessarily acquired from themselves for themselves. Over the next 100 years, France itself was ruled by kings and emperors for most of the 19th century, but it was a reference point for both the continent and overseas. That gave rise to a question which made little sense before, which was the populace that was to be sovereign. Several revolutions, not least the American ones, began with that question quite open. Exclusion on the base of religion and civilization and race took on a different meaning when the specific and vertical channels by which people connected to their monarchs could be set against the possibility of horizontal affinity of a nation of citizens and perhaps an empire of citizens. The importance of racist ideology and racially defined practices of government in 19th century empires is clear. But if we associate such ideas and practices with a century, we have a problem. The ideas were neither the object of consensus among European intellectuals and rulers, nor were they stable. Racial differentiation was shaped not just by grand ideas, but by conflicting practices on the ground. We need to be careful about a direct association with Enlightenment's thought alleged propensity to make categorical distinctions uh, with the rise of scientific racism that elaborated categorical distinctions among peoples and turn them into a justification for white domination. Enlightenment thinkers, Diderot himself stands out in this regard, were as capable of taking apart the rational basis for distinctions as others were of making them. Diderot thought that distinctions among people provided no legitimate argument for empire. Arguments about race were ongoing throughout the 19th century. And in another, from another angle, the growth of Anglo-American religious reformism in the early 19th century outside of secularist strands of enlightenment thought also requires much more weight and subtle analysis than the enlightenment bashing that post-colonial theory has popularized. Once one gets away from, from large generalizations, there is a lot to be said about the interplay of race, culture, and socioeconomic change. Studies by Catherine Hall in the British West Indies and Richard Price in South Africa portray a religious universalism among missionaries early in the century. A view of people of African descent as open to conversion and participation in a world of small-scale farmers and and entrepreneurs who could be political as much as economic uh, agents. They then explain, in quite different contexts, how missionaries' encounters with people who had very different ideas about how they wanted to live uh, produce frustration and bitterness among these missionaries opened the doors to doubts about whether Africans or their descendants were redeemable. They also show how strongly such ideas were contested within missionary establishments. We know as well that the imposition of colonial rule in West Africa later in the century resulted in the marginalization of those Africans furthest along on what might might be considered a civilizing process. Literate Christian Africans in coastal communities found themselves excluded from a situation in which formal bureaucratic channels were claimed by whites and African intermediaries were supposed to be traditional. Once again, such arguments were contested, especially by educated Africans themselves, whose innovations in political organization and in founding independent Christian churches at century's end opened up a critique of colonialism at its very origins. In scientific circles, as as, as Helen Tilly has recently shown in the British case, There was little consensus after 1900 about what science had to say about race, whether distinctions were immutable, subject to various forms of improvement, whether they expressed human diversity. These are issues that were debated. The uncertainty in the late 19th century over whether colonization would be vigorous or not, systematic or not, transformative or not, should encourage us not to look for new imperialisms, but to try to think about imperialisms as they were. Empires existed in continental and maritime space. They raised questions about the nature of of internal structures and imperial rivalries. The Ottoman Tanzimat and the abolition of slavery in the British West Indies were overlapping processes, attempts to articulate a coherent agenda in which elites and large empires could believe. The dual monarchy of 1867 in Austria-Hungary, and the arrangements Britain devised with Canada, Austria, and New Zealand were creative, if not entirely convincing, attempts to preserve an imperial structure in which diverse elites might maintain an interest. The Napoleonic Wars, in contrast, were attempts to constitute a singular European empire on the scale of Rome, and its failures resulted from the mobilization of imperial resources, from Britain's naval power and colonial resources to Russia's vast spaces, and diverse human resources, as well as alliances and and cooperation among empires to prevent such singular domination. For old and new European powers, conquering Africa and playing off Russians and Ottomans against each other were ways by which great powers tried to keep resources far and near under their control and avoid the threat of someone else monopolizing them. They didn't fully appreciate that Japan was playing the same empire game. Fighting Russia in helping itself to bits of East Asia, a move that would a half century later help to bring down the entire structure of global empire. In In the meantime, the great war of the early 20th century was not between bourgeoisie and proletariat, between white and black, between colonizer and colonized. It was a war in which young men from Anatolia, West Africa, India, Siberia, and Australia fought to preserve empires that ruled them. Historians who dismiss Ottoman, Austro-Hungarian, and Russian empires as a type of polity that should have long disappeared into the world of nations might note that people from around these empires fought with with similar combinations of loyalty and coercion as people in other empires, and that Africans and Indians fought as well, if not by choice, at least by acquiescence. If we avoid the trap of seeing the world in terms of epical transformations, from one singular category to another, from tradition to modernity, from empire to nation state, we can better understand the world of the late 19th, early 20th century with all its unresolved tensions over the forms of politics with all all its conflict among complex and heterogeneous politics. Having lost empire since 1960, French and uh, British uh, leaders, journalists, intellectual scholars have for a time given a national slant to their histories, as if empire building was a temporary and correctable sidelight to a story of forging a modern democratic nation. It has been hard for some intellectuals to face the critique that came from other intellectuals, those from the former colonies, who pointed out that colonization was the dark side of modernity, the tyrannical mirror image of the narrative of progress and democratization. Yet this counter-narrative still kept the narrative of the European nation and modernity at the center stage of world history, no longer positive but still all-determining. It is still more difficult to acknowledge that the basic story, not just its moral valence, doesn't quite work. That Europeans' ability to remake their political practices couldn't keep up with the imagination of its visionaries. The most salient aspect of the politics of empire in the 19th century uh, was that its Tensions uh, uh, that it revealed were unresolved. Tensions between the idea of nation or people and the uncertainty over who the people were. Tensions between desires to control one's destiny and entrapment in a structure of inter empire rivalry that periodic attempts to mediate could not contain. Between ways of thinking of themselves as innovative, advanced, developed, modern and the cumbersome politics of inter-empire conflict and shifting alliances that would one day subsume them between a conception of Africans and Asians as objects to be exploited or reformed, and necessities of imperial rule that alternated terroristic excess and compromises with the very people, political structures, and political structures one held in contempt even the most recent efforts to, to write colonialism back into European history have had trouble giving up the myth that 19th century empire builders created about themselves. Uh, colonial critique, while taking apart the hubris of a European narrative of progress, has tended to make abstractions of the causes and deflect re- responsibility onto epics. Those Africans who were the onto epics. Those Africans who were the victims of King Leopold's minions in the Belgian Congo were rounded up by African chiefs in the northern Cote d'Ivoire to work for virtually no wages for planters in the southern Cote d'Ivoire, were experiencing the messy and inconsistent realities of colonialism shaped by sophisticated economic connections and the crudity and brutality of men who chose their exploitative vocation and also by the tacit understandings of chiefs and officials among uh, who were aware that they were unequal, but also were aware that each had limited power. Meanwhile, the spiral that led to World War I took place in a part of the world where the Austro-Hungarian Empire had recently taken over territory from the Ottomans, uh, two dynasties that had been going at each other for 400 years, where Russian, German, British, and French empires were jockeying for geopolitical advantage, and whose efforts both responded to and affected the actions of nationalist movements who had come nowhere close to imposing a national order of things on southeastern Europe. In the 21st century, there are some who still try to explain the world as a clash between those who are modern and those who are not, or between those who impose modernity and those who seek to save themselves from it. And the question with which I would like to end is this. Can we perhaps think with any more understanding of the unresolved tensions and complex conflicts with which generations past lived, and with which we live today. Thank you for your attention.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank you very, very much. I uh, will take a few questions. So, questions.
0: Thank you for the very insightful description of the perspectives on colonialism back in the 18th 19th century compared to now. My question is, uh, in the United States, um, uh, we've had, for lack of a better word, an awakening of um, slavery that we lost so many lives on, including the lives of president, And we have a sense of um, perspectives that are very different then in the 18th and 19th century, when Obama visited Ghana, he visited where the slaves came, which same place I visited 15 years ago. But uh, I'm not an expert in British colonialism right now, but if you just watch Wimbledon tennis right now, in front of the New England, all England clubs, Rudyard, Clip Kipling's quotes are there. The same guy who wrote, it's a white man's burden for the British to colonize Africa to educate them to save their souls now there hasn't been uh the same kind of political sensitivity in europe uh in britain and um and in, in replacement of that we don't have the british empire that where the sun never sets but we have a british commonwealth where the sun never sets australia canada is still part of it British Commonwealth. It's not colonialism, but they have a certain alliance and they vote for that. Now, do you see that as historians, there's a certain sense of um, the privilege of the elites, that that there's a certain sense of that awakening that is still lacking in Europe about their role as uh, colonists and having the white man's birth, and especially their role in Asia. There are many colonies in Asia. You mentioned India, but Hong Kong, Malaysia, Singapore, and there are a lot of vestiges of you know uh, them pushing drug trade, pushing opium into Asia and all that. So do you see an awakening and how do you factor that into your conception, you know, of how you understand empires in the modern world?
3: Well the, the what you point to this this possible possibility of an awakening awakening uh, awareness of, of colonialism is the, is the subject that's getting enormous attention in France after uh, decades of trying to uh, to forget after 1962 when France lost Algeria or so or so they would have put it um, after really writing this out of of French consciousness of 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 history in favor of a myth of a continual French republic going back to 1789 and a pure republican ideology that survived various blips and made, made a few errors along the way, but nonetheless carries through. And this is now a subject of a very uh, uh, engaged political debate in, in, uh, in France. But mean, meanwhile, a very, this very strong national narrative has been, has been written of a, about a very French France with, ver, with, with very French... Uh, conception of politics uh, and the story I'm trying to, to tell is not just one uh, of a uh, French dominance over other people but, but that France had to deal with real live people pushing back uh, and in some cases pushing back quite, quite effectively. So I think there is becoming a, a more uh, dynamic awareness uh, uh, of empire, but it's but it is running again. In, it runs smack into uh, a, a kind of national uh, uh, tunnel vision uh, that's written strongly in, in, into into history. I'm more involved with the, with the French instance than, the, than than the British one. But if you if you look at British views of uh, of empire, there's actually a number of things going on over over uh, over time. And one was an, an argument that was made in the period I'm talking about, late 19th, early, early 20th century, that goes under the, the, the phrase Greater Britain, uh, which was, an, was sort of an idea that one had a particular kind of British presence around the world uh, that had been a consequence not just of empire retained, but even of empire lost, such as, such as the colonies of North America. And certainly including the Dominions, who were no who no longer were basically self-ruling. But the interesting thing about the notion of Greater Britain was a very white vision of uh, of what Britain was and really couldn't think in any clear terms about India or about the colonies in in Africa or Singapore or uh, Malaya. Uh, And this kind of notion of of Greater Britain was... was very severely challenged over the course of the 20th century including by those very places like Canada and, and New Zealand that would seem, seemingly uh, fit the, the best uh, into it. But, the, the, but in the, in, after the loss of the African, of Indian in the African colonies, there's again a nationalizing of, of, of history that could take in the old Greater Britain notion but tried to write out uh, what became known as the non-white commonwealth. Uh, so, yes, these, these, the ideas that we're dealing with with here are how does one conceive of empire space as an, as an entity and how, what kinds of postures is one forced into uh, rethinking those concepts of empire space when the political circumstances change and when power is no longer what power uh, used, used to be. But my, my argument here is, is, is that one has to think of, of empire space as empire space, not as uh, not seeing the, the national space as the, given from the, as the given entity from which one starts, but to see this nationalizing of history in relationship to the, to the course of empire. Uh, I, I appreciated your comments about the uh, European seaborne empires being a sign of their weakness.
2: And I wonder what your reflections are about the United States and its involvement in South Korea, Afghanistan, Iraq, oh, et cetera, et cetera. Is that a sign the, of it? We're
3: going from the 16th to the 21st century. <laughs> uh, well, here, let me just state what our basic argument in the book is, is the way we conceptualize the, uh, the U.S. empire. We see, it, we see it as primarily a continental empire. Uh, that the, start, the starting point is Jefferson's concept of an empire of liberty, here he had saw himself very much as part of a world of empires. And that's the way American policy had to be shaped to, to, to deal with that. In the, over the course of the 19th century, you see the extension of an American uh, presence over, a, over continental space. So we write about it in the same chapter as we write about the extension of, of Russia over much of Eurasia. Uh, And this was not a. uh, This confronted the United States with different Native American peoples, and also with different empires: the French for a time until they sold it, and in a much more contested way, the Spanish and and empire, and the Mexican. uh, Well, it was called itself an empire for a while too before calling itself a nation. Um, So you're you're seeing a complex. Land-based imperial structure devised in, wh- in which the U.S. goes way towards the spectrum uh, of uh, of non-incorporation of of subordination rather, rather than differential incorporation. So so Indians end up in what, what we call reservations. Uh, they end they they only uh, acquire generalized citizenship in 1924. Uh, so the American polity is is is, is is not about defining a subordinate but fully integrated space for different peoples in a wider political structure, but in, cre- in creating uh, a sharply differentiated unit between those who are in and of citizenship rights and those who are out uh, and don't. Now, this clearly is changing in, in, in the course of, of, of the 20th century. But when, when the United States does acquire overseas colonies, Puerto Rico, Philippines, notably, um, it does not create a colonial office. Britain had a colonial office. France and Minister ministère des colonies, a frank expression of what they were doing. The U.S. calls calls uh, Puerto Rico a commonwealth, uh, and uh, and the Philippines are pro- are actually it claims that in, by 1910 it's claimed that it's setting the Philippines on the way out. In part because there was a very strong argument in the United in the United States in the early 20th century that was essentially a racist anti-imperialism that we don't we don't want, we don't, we don't want people of color to be incorporated into the uh... polity even as a basis of, an, of inferiority uh, well i think this lays the basis for a, for a, for a power that's fundamentally a, a, a continental empire that has a set of tools that it can use it's not the same repertoire as say the british have it doesn't use colonization the same way but it certainly does use occupation it certainly does it does use um, military invasions of of various sorts so rather than get into, get into a long disquisition on Iraq and Afghanistan, let me just say that I see this in the, in the context of this long trajectory of developing a particular repertoire uh, of, of uh, power that comes out of this particular kind of continental empire that's created from the 18th through the end of the 19th century.
4: Thank you for another, like, fabulous um, paper. And I'm, I'm very intrigued by the way you're treating um, modernity, and I'm convinced by, quite convinced by your argument. Um, yet I'm, you know, I'm curious, I, I look forward to reading the, the full book about it, but I'm curious to hear a little bit more about you, about the way you handle different relationships to ideas of the modern that are embraced by various actors mm-hmm. in, this, in this story. And how that fits into your idea of imperial repertories, and perhaps how it contrasts to a more, uh, you you know, uh, something like Jean and John Komaroff's relationship to to talking about modernity, colonialism, Mm -hmm. and missionization.
3: Well, it so happens that I've written uh, a theoretical article on exactly that subject. Uh, It's it's a chapter in my book, Colonialism in Question. it's an artic- It's a chapter that's about seventy pages long, so I will not summarize it here. Uh, part of the the the, arg- the, arg- the the argument is that modernity is used in, in so many mutually contradicting, contradictory ways that this this the that it loses almost all significance as an analytic concept. Uh, and I think the Cameros use it in three or four themselves. Um, and but I think the uh, point by which I respond to, the, to your question. is to to say that that this critique about the the incoherence of the concept of modernity is a critique of using it as an analytic concept, not at all about using it as as a native or indigenous concept. So if people talk about modernity, we we need to listen to them. And that's one reason why I don't want to use it as an analytic concept, because I think there are a lot of modernities out there that have actually been used historically. And the book I cited uh, at the beginning of the the talk, L'économisation chez les peuples modernes, Word the mer, the word modern is right there, so we 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 got to deal with it. Uh, but what's he trying What's he trying to say with it? Well, it, it's it, it 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 is a particular view of uh, of progress. It's a very Eurocentric view. It makes no sense other than your than than as a Eurocentric uh, view. Uh, so that's part, and that is clearly part of a conceptual apparatus behind a certain repertoire. Uh, that becomes discussed in the French colonial apparatus. It doesn't, it, but, but my point is that one cannot reduce French colonial practices to some kind of essence of modernity. Uh, they were neither modern nor non-modern. They, 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 they were, as, as, as I said, varied, brutal, and practical. Uh, so I think that's the, the, the way I would, would conceptualize Conceptualize it without trying to get into repeating uh, a a fairly complex theoretical argument that I've that I've made in uh, in another context. So I'll just plug my own book.
4: Thank you so much. I guess to echo everybody, Um, this is a little bit of a narrow question, but you focused um, largely on the late 19th, early 20th century, um, and a lot of the problems around how we conceptualize um, ideas of empire and colonialism. And you hinted a couple of times, and I was wondering if you could um, just elaborate a little bit further on what those implications are for how we use those words today, um, particularly as it's becoming more and more common for people to talk about modern imperialism and imperialism of ideas, imperial, you know, whether China exists as an empire or as a nation and whether words like that even work in those kinds of circumstances. Um, mm-hmm. I was hoping you could just elaborate a little bit further.
3: Okay, that's a good, that is an important question. Um, I mean, the basic answer is carefully. Uh, and we think these words are most useful if, if, if they are deployed with a certain precision. Empire has been used a lot especially since 2003 to mean a, something that's big and bad, uh, which which could be Bush's United States or it could be Coca-Cola Corporation. Uh, well, It can, but it doesn't help because then one's going to, going to have to invent another word for, dea- for dealing with a phenomenon that's more precise, which is a polity, uh, which is a polity that, the, that n- that we define in, in, in Jane and my book uh, as a polity that's expansionist, that's large, expansionist, or as a memory of expansion, and reproduces differentiation even as it incorporates. It governs different people differently. Uh, so, if it's if it's not a polity, we wouldn't call it. It wouldn't. It, we 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 think the word empire is most useful if confined in that in that in that way. Uh, so, you know, the the United States has no incorporative intentions in regard to Iraq, say, and that's an important point. So, thinking with the concept of empire actually helps us make certain distinctions that are that are that are important. We've occupied Iraq. We we may in some we certainly are exercising power over it, and and for a certain period of time may come to dominate it, but it's not going to be incorporated. It's not going to become a northern, another Puerto Rico, and that's on nobody's horizon. So that kind of distinction is worth, is worth making. It's not the same thing as what was happening when Jules Ferry was contemplating what to do in, in the, in, about in the, China in the in the 1870s, 1880s. A, it, we, these are useful distinctions to make. Colonialism is sometimes used uh, to express any, anything that entails uh, a high degree of discrimination, internal colonialism is a phrase that people use well that 's problematic, uh, because there was colonialism there was really colonialism uh, where square a certain kind of structure in which discrimination, in which the extremes of discrimination are certainly present but is incorporated into, into a political structure. If we want to talk about extremes of discrimination, we, we, we have other vocabularies that we can use we could we could call it racism, or we could call it extreme discrimination, or we, you know the lots of of possibilities which may have their own problems, uh, but I th- but I think we're most're we, we serve ourselves best if we use words like colonial uh, and empire with a certain degree of uh, of precision. Um, maybe we could be a little looser with adjectives and with nouns, so some now take an adjective like imperial uh, that it, you know, that is a pretty complex genealogy going going back to the Roman Empire, um, but it can be the the word might have some use, although I wouldn't go too far in this in this in this regard in this describing a, a range of forms of power at a distance. Uh, if it's not power, there's no point in, use, in 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 using it. If it's not distance, there's no point in 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 using it. Uh, the noun empire, I think, is most usefully reserved for a specific form of, uh, of polity. Uh, but you know, a, a practice can be imperial, or maybe we should just call it imperious, when it's, when it's, in, in that, it's deploying power uh, at a distance. But you know, these, this, the, the question of how, exactly how one should use these words, I think is actually a very useful one, uh, and, and in part because it makes us think about what we really want to say. But I think a lot of the ways these words have been used do have exactly the opposite effect. They make it harder for us to say what we mean.
5: Thanks very much. Um, I just have a quick question. I'm fascinated by this connection between um, nations and empires. Um, And uh, I wonder if you see a distinction between uh, those countries, those nations, um, which seem to be trying to elide that distinction um, and those that don't. So just to give you some concrete examples, I mean, you mentioned the Empire of Liberty, but the thing about Jefferson, I guess, for an American historian, seems so striking, is his insistence that new territory in the West of the, you know, what will become the United States has to enter the Union on an equal uh-huh. basis with the territory that's already there. So actually, there's something kind of profoundly anti-Imperial about that. And although that the sort of soundbite Empire of Liberty is often attached to him, conceptually at least, I'm not sure that really works that well. So, um, and if you look later in the 19th century, things like the debate about whether to acquire the Dominican Republic, Uh it's very clear in the debate that it can only come into the Union as a state rather than a protector or whatever else. Now, I think about France in the 1840s and the interest in incorporating Algeria. So is there a meaningful distinction there between those nations that seem to want to bring areas in on this supposedly equal basis and those that don't, say, like with Britain
3: and India? Yes, I, mean, I think one. I th- I mean, one can one can see empire as a as a, as a phase, for example. Something moves that one moves through. If you indeed produce homogeneity, then it ceases to be empire. It does be, It does become a, a national polity of some uh, of some sort. Uh, but there are a lot of problems along the way. Uh, Jefferson saw one channel of incorporation, and that's an extremely important point that the that the, the U.S. lays out. And not just that Jefferson said it, but that the Constitution and the Northwest Ordinance uh, give it a practical, elite, and juridical uh, framework. It basically is, is, is saying that there is such a thing as full incorporation, and there's only one route allowed to it. One can contrast, that, and we do in the book, with the strategies of Tsarist of, of Russia, in which there are many ways in and many statuses that one could have within the within. Another form of, of, of continental empire. So making these distinct, these, these are contrasts that, that, that one uh, should, should make. Uh, but what uh, Jefferson's argument couldn't do is, is uh, A, get away from the fact that the U.S. existed in a world of empires and, they were really, and was threatened by them, and B, that there were real people out there. And what, what Americans may have wanted was the territory, uh, but they had one way or another to, to, to deal with the fact that there were people on it. Thank
0: you very much. For more, please visit us at Stanford.edu.